For the wedding of Cana Galilee, Jesus uh, turns water into wine. And to, to get a picture of what John is doing there, it helps to understand how different John is from the other three gospel writers. Uh, John has really no parables. He's got a couple stories that look like parables. But John gives us pictures. He's a portrait painter, like a poet. I mean, think of how his gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. I mean, John is stringing together images. Sometimes the distinction is made between showing and telling. And where maybe Matthew leans to telling you about Jesus, uh, John is a shower. He's got the wedding at Cana, um, the woman at the well, the washing of the disciples' feet, the full scene with Pilate. Jesus breaks bread and fishes after gathering the fishes from the sea after his resurrection. And John wants you to know the gospel. He wants you to know his, the work of Jesus through pictures. And the first picture, the first sign we get is the wedding at, Can- at Cana in Galilee. And for John, that is his way of saying the rest of his gospel should be read through the lens of this image. It'll be the themes in it, the wine, the marriage, the miracles. The Lord who acts in an urgent hour will become these themes that repeat all through John's gospel to the end. And so as we look at this together as a church, there are three sides to it I want us to think on. The marriage aspect, the wine aspect, and the Eucharistic aspect. So the first is the fact that there's a wedding in Cana. That marital picture of all the places for Jesus to begin his ministry. You know, he's not in the temple. He's not in Rome. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not with the public scenes. He's not with Pharisees. He's with family at a wedding. And he begins at this moment that marks the beginning of parenthood and, and um, love of marriage, of a union in life. And Jesus says, this is how I want to be known in my ministry, that I enter in in a place of love. I enter into this place of union. You can hear that in our reading in Isaiah 62 today. Oh, and you, sh- you sons of Israel shall be his bridegroom, or shall be his bride. He shall be your bridegroom. The Lord has come to make himself known as a lover for his people. What's driven him to come into the midst of emergency and to sin is a great and deep and overwhelming love for his people. Uh, The scene begins, John says this, it's easily passed over. The very first sentence, uh, John says, and it was the third day. And if you were to pick up and read through John, you should come to that moment and say, why in the world does he say it's the third day? Because he doesn't mention the first or the second. And I preach on this at every wedding. I insist on it when I marry um, couples. Because I want this image to be clear about what a wedding symbolizes in the world. The third day symbolizes that third day in Genesis in the creation scene. Scholars agree on this. John has reached back and grabbed that image because it's on the third day that God gathered up the waters, as in the water pots, and the dry land appeared, and from them leaf-bearing plants and seeds and vines of every kind. It is the day that life and nourishment and beauty and flowering began to come to life in God's world, the third day. 
And so this beautiful unfolding picture that John is creating for us is the creator on the third day bringing wine to the man and the woman he places in the garden. And that scene in Genesis that very quickly goes downhill, that results in pride and abandonment and rejection, being banished from the garden, Jesus comes and says, I have the remedy. I have not given up on my creation, but in great love, I've come back to the third day to unite man and woman, to build families, to bear fruit in the world again. The deep love he has for the world comes out in this early scene. Jesus has come to save marriage. He's come in deep love. I say this at weddings whenever I preach on uh, John 2, that the significance of this should not be overlooked, of the marriage that bears fruit. It's not just romance. Like, oh good, now this couple can go on and be the happiest couple in all their days. And they went on and lived happily ever after. That's not what Jesus is after. He's after a love relationship that has children and builds a business in a home, and it bears fruit. Psalm 128 says, May your wife be to you as a fruitful vine. The wine imagery there again. Marriage is about children and families. It becomes about all sorts of things in our culture today, but if there's one thing Christians should stand for, it is about families. Now, you don't have to have children. You don't have to have four. But you've got to invest your life in the families around you that are bringing up children. It is the future of the world. We don't think about that often. We need to raise people. We need a new generation to work, to take on labor, to take the gospel to the nations, to fill in the seats in the church and do the labor of the the people of God. 40-something, almost 50 children in here. I think people believe that message. But think about the theological significance of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to his brother from prison on the occasion of his brother getting married. And he said, until now, your, your love has sustained you as a couple, two selves in love. But now your marriage will bind you together as a link to the generations. And you now will be used for the furthering of his people, of his creation, and of the gospel. And you become a work in his church. You are the primary symbol of the gospel in the world. This love that manifests itself for one another in a family. So family is significant to us. We ought to give our lives to children, to children's ministry, and to nurseries. But that image uh, picks up again in the wine, the fruit-bearing image of wine, is picked up as the church because uh, John the Baptist in chapter 3 will come and say Jesus is the bridegroom. Not only does he come to renew the love of families, he comes to make himself the bridegroom to the people of the world. This loving and warm welcome that he brings to us so that we might bear fruit. Fruit like wine that comes from water. In John 15, Jesus picks this image up again and he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. If you do not abide in me, you will not bear fruit, but you will be cut off. The welcome goes on to John 17, abide in me, you and me and I and them and they and you. 
The invitation of this marriage is, is one of mystery. We enter into Jesus, and when we're in the vine, we begin to bear fruit in the world that we could not bear without him. That's Paul's language in our reading in 1 Corinthians 12 today, where a fruit-bearing vine is the church of God. Each of you was given the gifts according to his wisdom. And then Paul says right in the middle of this passage, each was given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You see how those two work together. God pours out on each one of us a unique gift in the Spirit for the common good. He says this over and over in chapter 12, for there's one Spirit and one body and one faith and one church and one baptism and one God and Father of all. And then he comes back to address in chapter 14 the competition of gifts, and he says, but there is one spirit, one body, and we all eat of the same loaf. You all, the application to take away from today is, every one of you has been given a manifestation of the spirit for the good of this body. And you ought to know what that is. You ought to have at least some sign. When I come on Sunday, I know the church counts on this gift because God has given it to me for the well-being of that body. And it could be anything. You know, Paul says in the, in the nature of the church, he turns gifts on their head so that the lesser become more distinguished. And those who do the weak things and the smaller things are indispensable to the body to, so that the eye may not say to the hand, I have no need of you. What is your gift? When you get up on Sunday, you say, they need me there because I have fill-in-the-blank. You ought to know. You ought to be seeking to know. You ought to pray. Our small group ministries, our Bible studies, our worship services, and the pastorate exist to say, let me help you find your gifts. Because when you have them, you begin to bear fruit and the church grows in strength and it becomes like a fruitful vine and the light and the beauty and the salvation of the gospel goes out into the world. And when we squash those gifts down and follow our own passions and desires and our pastimes and our interests, then the church is not what it's meant to be. Few, if any, churches have ever achieved what Paul is imagining of a body that comes together with children who are indispensable in their voices for the gift of the church. It is a great reminder, isn't it? They're indispensable, those little voices in the church that remind us that we've all been knit together with all of our differences. And in that, God makes something beautiful and original for the sake of his kingdom. So we are celebrating a marriage that bears fruit in our gifts that's remembered weekly in the Eucharist. That communion meal we'll eat shortly. John has done this very intentionally. He begins his gospel with a Eucharistic meal. He breaks and and multiplies wine in the cup for people to drink and to share with them. In John 13, when he sits down to give us the great commandment, he washes his disciples' feet and breaks bread and drinks wine. And in his resurrection, when the disciples are scattered, he gathers them at a lakeside, breaks bread and bakes fishes, and says, go and do these things. John is setting up 
communion Eucharist, a liturgy. Scholars recognize that. John is leaving behind and encouraging the church to celebrate this Eucharistic feast. When Paul talks about those gifts in chapter 12 and chapter 11 was his instruction on the Eucharist. Some of you come and eat and leave and some of you come drunk and you disgrace the Lord's Supper for we should eat together. That cup reminds us that we are the bridegroom of Christ and the wine is significant to its meaning. Frederick Buechner helps us with this. He says, unfermented grape juice is a bland and pleasant drink, especially on a warm afternoon mixed with ginger ale, but it is a ghastly symbol of the lifeblood of Jesus Christ, especially when served in individual antiseptic thimble-sized cups. But then he goes on to describe blood, blood or wine. Wine, he says, is dangerous. Wine is booze, it is booze and it is drunk making. It makes the timid brave. It makes the reserved amorous. It loosens the tongue. And it breaks the ice, especially when served in a loving cup. It kills germs. And as symbols go, it is a rather splendid thing. I often think that when people think we come in and we're all going to drink from that same cup of highly potent wine grown on a vine at the care and tender hands of people and share our germs, yeah, it ought to be dangerous. It ought to spark the imagination. It ought to blow open your mind to what God is doing in Christ at that wedding of Cana when he began to make things new. It ought to symbolize that. I love that language of the Catholic service that we don't have in our liturgy. They begin their Eucharistic service. The fruit of the vine and the work of human hands have become our spiritual drink. That's what Paul says if you heard it today in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That spirit who he gives us all to drink. The Eucharist just folds naturally back into the bearing of fruit in the body because we share one loaf and we share one cup, because we share one marriage with the one bridegroom who has come to make us his own in love so that we might bear fruit in the world. May he make it so among us. Amen.